I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November 26th, 2013. Coming up, Dr. Christine Cunningham of the Boston Museum of Science talks about why kids should be taught engineering and why it matters to all of us. And Boulder based photographer John Weller discusses how climate change and industrial fishing is threatening the world's most pristine marine ecosystem, Antarctica's Ross Sea. His new book is called The Last Ocean. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Speaking of Antarctica, an experiment at the remote reaches of the South Pole has detected some of the most energetic particles from the remote reaches of the universe. The ice cube detector at the South Pole is designed to detect neutrinos, which are the ethereal ghosts of the elementary particle world. They pervade the universe but rarely interact with it. Every second, tens of billions of neutrinos pass through every square centimeter on Earth without slowing down. Out of those billions and billions of neutrinos, IceCube has detected 28 neutrinos with energies greater than 30 tera-electron volts, or TeV. Two of the neutrinos, nicknamed Bert and Ernie, had an energy of more than 1,000 TeV. Now, how much energy is that? It's more than the kinetic energy of a fly in flight. Now, that doesn't seem like much, but remember, that energy is all compressed into a single subatomic particle. Recently, they detected another neutrino with nearly twice as much energy as Bert and Ernie. This event was nicknamed Big Bird. So why is that interesting? And what can you learn from the study of such a small number of particles that each particle bit can be given a name? Neutrinos with such high energies can be created in only the most powerful events in the universe. So these particles may be pointing back to cataclysmic events, such as the enormous particle jets ejected by a black hole after it swallows a star in distant galaxies. And for all you math lovers, listen up. Here's a headline from How on Earth's Jim Pullen. Let's remember one of the 20th century's greatest mathematicians, Norbert Wiener, on his birthday. Wiener was brought into this world in Columbia, Missouri, on November 26, 1894. Just 17 years later, Harvard awarded Wiener a Ph.D. After journeys to Cambridge and Göttingen and a stint at Harvard teaching philosophy, Wiener went to MIT, where he worked for 40 years. While studying Brownian motion, the random motion of particles suspended in a fluid or gas... Wiener developed the integral calculus for functions of infinitely many variables. Functional integration is important in pure and applied math, economics, and physics. Wiener also invented theoretical and practical results critical in signal processing. I've used his filter to develop algorithms for oil and gas exploration using gravity and magnetic fields. Wiener developed cybernetics in the mid-20th century, Cybernetics studies how systems regulate themselves, whether biological, social, mechanical, or cognitive. An early proponent was Margaret Mead. Although Wiener developed armaments in both world wars, in later life he became a pacifist and refused government funding or to work on weapons. For How on Earth, this is Jim Pullen. Even if carbon dioxide emissions on Earth come to a sudden halt, the CO2 already in the atmosphere could continue to warm our planet for centuries, according to new research. The study? 
led by scientists at Princeton University, suggests that it might take a lot less carbon than previously thought to lead to global temperatures that scientists believe are unsafe. Scientists simulated an Earth where carbon emissions into the atmosphere suddenly stopped. CO2 in the simulation dissipated as expected, but over a long period of time, the Earth actually did not cool. The simulation took into account more accurate estimates of ocean heat transfers, which created a lingering warming effect over the centuries, even as CO2 in the atmosphere decreased. After a century of cooling, the simulated Earth warmed back up over the next 400 years. The study contradicts a scientific consensus that the global temperature would remain constant or decline if emissions were cut to zero. That means that Earth's temperature could rise by 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial level levels sooner than previously thought, according to researchers. The UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warns that such an increase would dangerously interfere with the climate system. To stay below that point... Total carbon emissions into the atmosphere should not exceed 750 billion metric tons, the research suggests. That's much less than the IPCC's recommended 1,000 billion ton ceiling for accumulated carbon. The study, published Sunday in Nature Climate Change, suggests that it could be more difficult than previously thought to reverse global warming. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Many of you may have heard of STEM education. STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. Many math and science topics are introduced throughout most years of primary education, but what about technology and engineering? There are so many fields of engineering, and they seem so technical and require skills and training beyond what is traditionally taught in K-12 through classes. So how do you do that? In the December issue of the Discover magazine, former How on Earth contributor Brianna Draxler writes about teaching engineering in schools to kids of all ages. One of the people addressing this is Dr. Christine Cunningham. She's Vice President of Research and Educator Resource Development for a project called Engineering is Elementary that was developed by the Museum of Science in Boston. For more than 15 years, Dr. Cunningham has been creating science and engineering curricula, offering professional development programs for teachers, and conducting research and assessment related to the learning and teaching of science and engineering. She is on the phone to talk to us about why it's important to teach engineering to students starting early in their education and how it can be done. Welcome to How on Earth, Christine. Thanks for having me. So uh, can you just give us uh, what is the problem that you're trying to address? So when we think about it, our society today depends on engineers. The coffee cup that you drank out of this morning, the microwave that you put your food in, um, the car that you drove in, all of these are products that are designed by engineers to help make our life easier or better. So they're constantly imagining and innovating new products. And America's schools and students right now are not producing, or America's schools are not producing enough students um, that to fill the engineering and technology demand. Um, and to be competitive as a nation, we need to have these STEM workers um, and a STEM literate citizenry. 
So on one hand, we need to graduate students who are the innovative problem solvers, some of whom will pursue careers in engineering and technology and help us bring the next you know, version of um, the products that we use to life. But on the other hand, we also need citizens who are problem solvers, even if they don't pursue STEM careers. Um, many of our pressing issues today, the environment, public health, energy, economic development, all of these require some basic knowledge of STEM and creative problem solving. So if we um, want citizens to understand and be good decision makers, um, we need to make sure that they have some background in um, these technologies and engineering. So you want, so, to, you want to generate the next generation of scientists and engineers, but also just a, a engineering technological literate population. Absolutely. So what does it, we're talking early education, what does it mean uh, by teaching engineering to six- and seven-year-olds? I mean, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, so what we really try to focus on is building on students' natural inclinations to engineer. When you watch even any three- or four-year-old at play, um, you'll see them constantly building things, um, designing them, and then knocking them down, um, and then going through the cycle again. Um, and so we are trying to support these kinds of tendencies, which traditionally haven't um, been supported by uh, traditional school instruction. So, for instance, um, we want to develop a series of, we call them engineering habits of mind, the kinds of attributes that would lead to success um, as an engineer or as an engineering literate citizen. So, for instance, um, we'd like students to learn from failure instead of having failure be something that's um, bad or problematic in the classroom. Um, the only way you can create new innovative things is to try something out. It's likely not going to work the first time, but then try something new um, and continue to improve from that. That must be um, a hard concept to get across, that failure is good. <laughs> well, when you think about it in you know, before we hit school, um, little kids constantly need to be taught how to do things. They're constantly trying new things. Um, and until you tell them that, you know, there's only a single way of doing things or, or one correct answer, I think it's actually fairly natural that we as humans learn that way. Um, so if you open that door back up to the students um, in young grades, they very readily sign on to that. Um, because it's so natural for them. And the older they get and the further they progress throughout school, the harder it is to sort of go back to that basic way of thinking. But um, the kids generally really embrace that kind of uh, way of approaching the world. So I, I seem to recall your curriculum has on the order of 20 or so units that you teach. Can you give an example of just what the, a unit may contain? Yes. So as you mentioned, we do have 20 units. And the way that we developed those was to think about the topics that children are generally learning in elementary school as they study science. So they may study about plants or weather or electricity. And so for each of those science topics, we've created an engineering unit that invites the students to take the science concepts they are learning and apply them as they solve an engineering challenge. They solve some sort of problem. So for instance, oftentimes, children in elementary school learn about plants. They learn about the parts of plants, that they have leaves and roots and stems, and they learn about some of the basic needs of plants. They need sunlight, they need water in their science class. We've taken that and we've developed 
uh, unit um, that asks students to think like um, packaging engineers. So their challenge is to develop a very simple package. Um, they can choose a couple different materials, but one of which is a soda bottle. Um, and they have to think about how they're going to design a plant package that both meets the basic needs of plants and um, meet some of the basic needs of packaging engineer, package engineering. Um, and so we've created a very simple process, um, the engineering design process for elementary school students, that asks them to go through five sort of simple steps to help them think about how they can develop a package excuse me, <clears throat> that might meet the basic needs of plants. Um, that's the end point of the unit. But before they get to that challenge, we like to help them set what they're doing in a larger context. We know that helps children's motivation and helps them to learn. And so their engineering unit actually kicks off with a child's storybook. And they read, either as a class or individually, the story of a young child somewhere in the world um, who encounters a similar kind of problem that requires him or her to um, engineer a plant package. And so in that way, we connect the literacy um, and the rest of the engineering that the kids will do and introduce it in a friendly um, way to the children. So this must be very useful to the teachers that they can integrate rather than replace your curriculum into theirs. Is, is there a web page that teachers or other interested people can go to where you present your information? Yes. Um, our web page is, our project is Engineering is Elementary, so our web page is eie.org. And that has everything about our project and much more. Well, thank you very much for being on our show, Christine. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Christine Cunningham from the Museum of Science in Boston talking about integrating engineering and technology concepts into K-12 through education. You can find out more about engineering as elementary, as she said, at www.eie.org and also see the article Ease for Engineering in the December issue of Discover Magazine. You're listening to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Susan Moran. One of the healthiest ecosystems on Earth is located, no surprise, at the bottom of the world. It's the Ross Sea in Antarctica. It's so pristine largely because it's protected by a 500-mile-wide shield of floating ice. And, well, it's not exactly easy to get to. But in recent years, even the Ross Sea has come under threat. The main threat, besides a background of climate change, is industrial fishing ships. They're hunting as far south as they can for the lucrative Antarctic toothfish, which we know has been rebranded as Chilean sea bass for U.S. consumers. John Weller is a nature photographer and conservationist living in Boulder. He's documented in stunning images the beauty and fragility of the Ross Sea. A book of his photographs and observations called The Last Ocean was recently published. Weller joins us in the studio to talk about the Ross Sea and far beyond, as well as his efforts to create and fight for marine protected areas around the world. John, welcome to How on Earth. Absolutely an honor to be here. First, um, Antarctica is huge, what, double the size of Australia or something. Um, place us at the Ross Sea. Sure. The Ross Sea is uh, almost directly south of New Zealand. So uh, this, the most uh, recognizable part of Antarctica is the Antarctic Peninsula, and that's right south of uh, 
uh, South America. If you go around to the uh, east, or I'm sorry, to the west from the uh, uh, Antarctic Peninsula, uh, about a thousand miles, you get to the Ross Sea. <laughs> Just around the corner. Just around the corner. In relative terms. And what drew you there? Well, uh, it actually started, to believe it or not, in Colorado at in the Great Sand Dunes. And I did a book on Great Sand Dunes, and I was down there during the changeover when it became a national park. And what was really profound to me about that was that it was a, a strange set of bedfellows that got together to create the national park. There were the usual players like the Nature Conservancy and the Park Service, but there was also the ranchers from the San Luis Valley, this PTA from from the uh, uh, from Alamosa, and and it was bipartisan the protection of this place. What was what was neat about that is that uh, these people, these uh, and and some of them who would really didn't care about the dunes that much mm-hmm. at all, realized that the conservation was a means to an end. Uh, it it was protecting their valley for their uh, lives. And uh, I saw that it was an incredible redefinition of the word conservation even. And I wanted to try to tell that story again and be on the forefront of pushing for conservation uh, in, in that way. And very sh- shortly after that, I read a paper. A friend of mine actually brought it to me. She was a high school friend of mine. She actually thrust this paper into my <laughs> hands. And... Uh, it was by an Antarctic ecologist, David Ainley, and it's Who's called... Who's done a lot of work on climate change and penguins and... Absolutely. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's one of the old guard down there. And this is a strange paper. It's called Acquiring a Base Datum of Normality for a Marine Ecosystem. Uh, and despite that title, it's something I think everybody needs to know. He basically lays out the story of the Ross Sea, saying it is the last large intact marine ecosystem on Earth. And that absolutely took me for a ride. Uh, I really knew nothing about oceans at the time, and I read this paper, and I couldn't even believe that there would be a last place. And and uh, so as I started working on it uh, and researching it further and further, uh, it just it, it grew in my mind, and, and I en- ended up uh, calling David Ainley, going out and talking to him. His, his words were like white fire, wow. and it just absolutely, uh, uh, it's directed the last 10 years of my life. So, and your book, I mean, it really shows stunning images of the beauty. Thank there you. are penguins, there are killer whales, there's these exotic jellyfish. Toothfish, not so exotic. But I guess I partly ask, as devil's advocate, for all the things happening in fisheries around the world that are more tangible geographically and otherwise to people, mm-hmm. why should they care other than for this exquisite beauty about the Ross Sea? About the Ross Sea. Well, that's a great question, and it leads right into the heart of what I think this project means. Uh, if you look at ocean systems, we are pushing ocean ecosystems to the brink of collapse worldwide. Uh, the, the, the numbers are actually pretty much staggering. If if you you know the 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 uh, uh, most pes- pessimistic uh, numbers say that we've eaten through ninety percent of the world's top predatory fish since nineteen fifty ninety percent the the most optimistic numbers say we've eaten about seventy percent so you know in either case we're we're really reaching the limit of our of our capacity and the the limit of the ocean's capacity to support. Uh, our society. So the Ross Sea being this last place, uh, we're, we're fighting over there over 3,000 tons of fish. That's one three hundredth of 1% of the world's catch. And while we're doing that, ocean health is declining precipitously. We need to take a stand and we need to 
start the process of sweeping changes in the world's oceans. So what do the data show about the toothfish? Actually, first describe the toothfish. This is a big fish. <laughs> this is a big fish. This is the largest predator fish in the Southern Ocean. It gets up to about 150 kilograms huh. at, at the top. And it, it basically takes the role of the shark in that ecosystem. So it's, it's a really important predator fish in the Ross Sea, the most important predator fish in the Southern Ocean, actually. Uh, and, and as such, it has uh, uh, influence throughout the ecosystem. Everything is, is pretty much tied uh, to each other, of, of course, because it's an ecosystem. But the Ross Sea, or the, the uh, uh, Antarctic toothfish, plays a, a central role. And uh, it lives very deep. It lives at 2,000 feet and below. Uh, it lives a long time, 50 years, doesn't start to mature uh, or it doesn't start to reproduce until it's teens. And uh, other than that, people know very little. And that's maybe the most dangerous thing about this fishery. Nobody's ever found an egg. Nobody's ever found a larval fish. They don't know where they breed. They don't know uh, uh, how often they breed. They don't, uh, they don't know much about this so fish. So the data are scant on even – well, so then uh, how do we know if the fisheries are actually a problem now? I take it you're saying they're just not sustainable? Well, the, the question of sustainability is, is one that we could fight forever. And, and there are uh, – well, to give you an idea, there are 500 of the top Antarctic scientists have signed a petition saying this is not a good fishery. It's, it's going to affect the ecosystem. And they're already starting to see ripples. Uh, there's a specific type of, of killer whale in the Ross Sea, type C killer whale. They, they uh, actually think it may be its own species. It feeds almost exclusively on fish, and toothfish being a big part of their diet. They're starting to see fewer and fewer of those whales in the Ross Sea, indicating this is the canary in the coal mine, and uh, uh, we have to listen to it. So we just got about a minute left. Um, we know, I certainly have tasted and loved, actually, Chilean sea bass. What, what to do? What should consumers do? I mean, I know there are these certification, that, like the Marine Certification Council, that seem to be, if you can buy your way into it, you can get certified as sustainable. But what, is anything sustainable in terms of the toothfish, a.k.a. Chilean sea bass? Here, here's the general rule. If it comes from Antarctica, it's living in a glass of ice water, and at 2,000 to 5,000 feet, don't eat it. Uh, uh, let that one pass. Take a pass on Chilean sea bass, I think was the old saying. Take a pass on Chilean sea bass. Well, that's it for now. Thank you so much. That was photographer John Weller. He'll be actually signing and talking about his book and research tonight at an Audubon Society event. It's the Boulder County Audubon Society. The talk starts at 730 at the Boulder Unitarian Universalist Church. That's at 5001 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's free. And actually, there's a uh, broader book sale that begins at 530 at the venue. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Beth Bartell is our executive producer this quarter. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Opafire and Keith Jarrett. Thanks to Jim Pullen and Brian Calvert for headline contributions. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.